so the last time I was behind this pulpit, it was Christmas Eve. We have a new, um, we have a new mat from the pulpit. <laughs> it was a beautiful night. Snow had just fallen, actually, like, just like this morning. Um, I was about to take a week off to spend with my family, who were coming in from different parts of the country. Uh, and then I was going to spend the month of January getting ready for the arrival of Stacy and my daughter, who was actually due this week. <laughs> and Chelsea and I, during that service, read uh, one of my favorite Christmas readings by uh, Sophia Faz. For so the children come, and so they have been coming always in the same way. Parents sitting beside their children's cribs feel glory at the sight of a new life beginning. They ask where and how will this new life end or will it ever end? For each night a child is born is a holy night. And I remember standing here, reading that, getting choked up reading that, thinking about how differently this passage felt this time than the dozens of times I have read it before. How, in a month, <laughs> I would be sitting next to my daughter's crib wondering what her life would hold. Three days later, <laughs> my parents were in town from the, for the holiday, as was my sister and her girlfriend. We had just spent the day buying a crib, and I was sitting in the hospital looking at my very tiny daughter who arrived suddenly and a month early, <laughs> wondering what her life would hold and how we were going to cover the January worship schedule at the <laughs> Unitarian Church. <laughs> For so the children come, always in the same way, sure, but no matter how expected, how natural it is, having a child is still a very unexpected and overpowering event. So I do want to take a moment and just thank everybody who has stepped up in the last month to Jamie Radcliffe, Ramona Sacred Sky, to Jack Gade, Fritz Hudson, Julie Cross, covered, who covered Sundays at the drop of a hat, to the staff and lay leadership who responded to my disjointed emails <laughs> from my phone in the hospital with gracious and at times direct advice to focus on my family, the church will be fine and to the many, many congregants who brought food over the last month. I am, we are, so thankful for all of you. There's a lot that, that comes with a baby. <laughs> you get sent home with a little hat. Your sleep schedule becomes different not a schedule in the traditional sense of the word. My back of the napkin calculations for how many diapers we would need each month were woefully inadequate. There's an overwhelming sense of responsibility but also joy for all its faults and foibles. We live in a, in a beautiful, complex world and suddenly we get to share it with this new person. It also compresses time in a strange way. I was sitting down to write this sermon, and I, the, the theme for February is uh, persistence, or perseverance. Um, and and the, fir the first terrible 
terrible sermon I wrote was about the, the perseverance of diaper changing at 2 a.m. <laughs> um, and that's true, but not, that's not a good sermon. That's not a good sermon. But then I thought about what, what it means to persevere. What, it, what abides from generation to generation. The, the thing that Joan Chittister says, you know, it takes thousands of lives, millions of lives. The, um, the, the opening hymn that we sung this morning, rank by rank again we stand, what they dreamed be ours to do. The, the persistence of things from generation to generation, that becomes very, very obvious when you're sitting there holding a child with your parents and your grandparents on the phone or in 2017 on Skype. So my parents and sister were unexpectedly in town for Ailish's birth. My parents told me they found themselves remembering and reliving the first days and weeks of their own parenthood. We heard a lot of stories. Some I'd heard before, some I hadn't, some I'd forgotten about. There's one, uh, for instance, uh, from when I was a couple months old, um, baby monitor technology was brand new. And my parents had one, but had avoided my entire life using the push to talk button on the baby monitor. They thought it was a little 1984-ish. <laughs> you, can, you can push the button and tell your child, you know, oh, I'm on my way. <laughs> so some family was over eating dinner. Uh, I was. I was upstairs, I must have gotten fussy, and without any warning, my uncle picked up the baby monitor, held down the button, and said, Oscar, this is God. <laughs> Go to sleep. <laughs> and my father wonders to this day if this is related to my eventual vocation. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's not, the story ends. Um, but we each hold stories like this, stories that are passed down from, from generation to generation that become a, a kind of external DNA in our lives, an inheritance that's not genetic, not physical, but is very, very real. Funny stories like the baby monitor one, hard stories of loss and disconnection, stories that tell us about those who had come before us and how our lives are in some way affected by theirs. And I think we hold those stories for the next generation. The inheritance we will pass on to them. Churches and other places of worship are holders of stories as well. In a very explicit way, they're, they're keepers of the big capital S stories, the, the myths that are at the heart of cultural inheritance, stories of exodus, of lotus blossoms, of good news and golden plates of rabbits in the moon. The foundational myths of religion, and, and here I mean myths not in the sense of a literal fiction, but myths as stories that hold meaning beyond whether or not they are accurate description of a historical event. Those stories get passed down from generation to generation in these places, each interpreting them in their own way, each changing the story a little bit, evolving the story a little bit, but persisting in the telling. 
And churches are also about the stories of people. In the tradition I come out of, the church is not a building or a cathedral. The church is the gathered. All of the individuals, each with their own lives, hopes, memories, that's the church. And so how we remember those stories and share, share them with each other becomes central. A vital task of the, the church as a whole. There's a poem I love by Rudy Nemser called Long Haul People. He writes, you find them in churches when you're lucky. Other places too, though I mostly know ecclesiastical varieties. Long haul people upon whose shoulders and pocketbooks and casseroles and daylight and nighttime hours a church is built and maintained. After the brass is tarnished and cushions need restitches, they pay their pledges in full and on time, even when the music is not to their taste. Support each canvas, though the sermons are not always short. Mow lawns and come to suppers. Teach Sunday school when there's no one else and they'll miss the service. Asked what they think of the minister or plans for the kitchen renovation or the choral anthem or Christmas pageant or color of the bathroom paint. They reply, individuals and fashions arrive and pass. The church, their church, will be here study and hail for a long time. For long haul people bless a church. Churches and congregations endure. They connect us to stories outside of ourselves, to each other. Critically, I think congregations are one of the few places where genuine connection and friendship across generations happens regularly. UU Pen Pals is going on right now, connecting children in this congregation to adults, writing letters back and forth, eventually sharing a meal. Some of my closest friends in my home church are 40 years older than I am, and my life is informed by stories they passed on about what it was like to be in Baltimore in 1968. Religion can also at least for folks in my line of work, connect us across generations. Excuse me. Okay, that's fun. <laughs> we'll just be a little off book at the end of the sermon. So I've spoken before about my grandfather, Kenneth Knox, my, my grandmother's father. He was a Methodist minister preaching in Illinois. Uh, he, was a, he was bald by the age of 35, uh, and in every picture I've seen of him. He was quiet, thoughtful, a bit of an academic. At one point, he was the district superintendent for the Methodist church in Decatur, a serious placement. He ended up spending most of his career bouncing between small churches in rural Illinois when my grandmother was growing up. The, the story goes, he was just a little bit too radical for Decatur. His obituary lists churches served as Shiloh and Tovey, McKendree and Fairview, 
Savoy, Deland, Mansfield, Bushnell, Clinton, Peoria, University Avenue, Moline, First, and Chickalee. And while I never met him, I identify with him, though I hope to move around a little less than that. <laughs> so a, a few weeks ago, Stacy and I had just brought uh, Ailish home from the hospital. It was a new generation suddenly present in our lives. And we got a package in the mail. My grandmother um, is starting to downsize, and she was going through her closet and, and found her father's portable baptismal font. <laughs> Such a thing exists. A vessel to hold water to baptize a baby when you travel across your dozen and a half churches that you serve in Illinois. And she thought perhaps we would like it. We don't, as a general rule, baptize children in this institution. We definitely don't travel hours to do so. But I opened up the package, and there, sitting there, was a chalice. It's almost the exact shape of this. The stories are like this. They don't need to be used in the same way from generation to generation in order to be appreciated and used. The, the UUA didn't exist in 1920. The use of a flaming chalice as a marker of reverence in our tradition was still a generation or two away. And yet I think if I had a chance to explain the whole situation to him, Reverend Knox would probably appreciate that his baptismal font was sitting in a minister's study in use from day to day. At this point, my sermon text is not here. <laughs> this is an actual scenario they tell you in seminary. What happens if you turn to your last page and it's gone? One of the projects that we talked about right before I left, that we were working on in December, uh, was starting to get these, um, these sermons published on our website through a podcast. Um, and we, we got that done in December. And we, we set up the podcast, and, and we started figuring out how we could distribute it and how we could get it on the website. But after a few days of that, and we we started thinking as a staff team, how might we use that distribution, that publication, beyond just sermons? So one of the projects that I was going to get started on in January, before handing it off while I went on parental leave, was to start meeting with members of this congregation and to bring a microphone and to see what stories we tell about this place, about what's come before, about our hopes for what comes next, about what this congregation was like in 1968 in Lincoln, and what it might be like in 2028. And so I, I hope, now that we're back, we can start to do that a little bit. to connect this congregation to stories, to publish those stories. It's one of the, the, the 
things that is most present in any church and that is suddenly more present than I have ever felt it in my own life, this connection between generations, this, this time compacting itself. So I hope we can spend some time to do that this spring and going forward. So the things that persist, the things that we hold on to, are the stories that we tell. So with that, I will say amen. And we will sing our closing